Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast. Hey, you guys. Uh, hopping over to the Nerdist channel today to see Team Nerdist Bull Team Walking Dead. Robert Kirkman and the cast of The Walking Dead try to knock down Team Nerdist from their undefeated streak. Will it happen? Well, you could just find out if you went over there. Also, uh, Matt Myra, Jonah Ray, and I will be taking the Nerdist podcast live to Phoenix, Arizona, May 25th, and in our hometown of Los Angeles, California, at Club Nokia on June 2nd. Information about that is at Nerdist.com slash calendar. Hey, Stamps.com, you're the nicest company in the world for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Look, you probably want to start some kind of business. I don't know you, but I'm pinning that on you anyway. Problem is, you already work a job that you hate, so you're going to have to build this other business on the side, which means mailers, which means you're not going to have time to go to the post office. But Stamps.com makes this super easy. You can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer anywhere in the world. It's easy, it's convenient, it automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package, or you can print directly onto the envelope if you want to. There's labels, or you can print onto plain paper, and then you just hand it to your mail carrier. Hey, here you go, Keith Mail Carrier Sten. When I say you will never have to go to the post office again, I absolutely mean it. Unless you have to pick up a package or something, but that's not our business. Right now, Stamps.com has a special offer for Nerdist listeners. Using the promo code NERDIST, you get a no-risk trial, $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale, and $55 of free postage. Holy crap! So please don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NERDIST. That's it! Stamps.com, enter the promo code NERDIST. And now this episode! Okay, it's John Lithgow. So this, I don't, there are no words for how amazing this was. Amazed, tasked, incredible? I don't know, but if you have the words for what it's like to sit down with one of America's greatest actors uh, right next to a theater and just have an hour-long conversation about stuff, then maybe give them to me, because they're not in my brain. This was also incredibly timed. It just so happened that uh, an hour and a half before we sat down to talk, uh, John found out that he was nominated for a Tony for his work in The Columnist, which you should absolutely go see if you're in New York um, for the next couple months. But if you ever had any doubts in your mind about whether or not John Lithgow was uh, an incredibly sweet, intelligent, engaging, and warm individual, then all of those doubts will be kicked in the face right here on the Nerdist Podcast, episode number 203, with John Lithgow. Now entering Nerdist.com.
Yeah. An it anarchist like, from yeah, the yeah. turn of the century. With the little wick yes, in it. Right. I don't know. But they, they were like, yeah, these uh, these bowling balls really uh, set uh, like. So anyway, if you're a professional bowler or if you're thinking about Gosh. bowling, just or check if your bag. your name is Sacco Vanzetti. My God. I'll yeah. leave you guys to it. Do you need anything? Okay, thanks. I think we talk for an hour. Good, yeah. Wow. Okay. Thanks, Mandy. I'll be right outside. Okay, great. First of all, congratulations on your Tony nomination. This Thank just you. happened. This happened uh, an hour and a half ago. Now, can you believe that we scheduled this for this morning? I could have either come here sort of glowing with triumph or, or drooping with defeat. <laughs> <laughs> and I scheduled it anyway. You know, it really, it could have been the, how's it going today? Ah, uh, not so great. <laughs> not so great. No, I'm very happy and very proud of our show. So You've been through this before, though, a, a few yeah, times. Yeah, this is my, actually my sixth Tony nomination. Wow. Um, and I guess the last one was for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Right. That was... Like 2005 or so. Did Frank Oz direct that? No, uh, that was directed by Jack O'Brien. Okay. He directed the he directed movie. He directed the movie, right? Yeah. 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 And we had his blessing. Oh, so. That's nice. <laughs> that's a fantastic. I love. I love that movie. Yeah, it was a great musical too. Um, did uh, is this kind of get? Do you still get nervous about it, or do you still just go, ah, this awards thing is just part of oh, it? Oh no, I, it's still very exciting. Um, you know, it, it's very intense when you do theater. You're all of us who are nominated, or, or like 60-70%, are all doing our shows. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're in the community, you're seeing everybody every night in, in bars, and there are all sorts of Tony uh, events, yeah. and Drama Desk and Outer Critics Circle events, and Drama League events. This is a, it's, an, it's, it's kind of the, the equivalent of, of Oscar season in Hollywood, I guess, but sure. that season, all leads up to the Oscars. Right. Uh, well, this all leads up to the Tonys, too, except the, the nominations have all been announced. So now we all get to go to all the parties together. And if you're not nominated, you don't get to go at oh. any parties. <laughs> so it's pure junior high school. But, you know? <laughs> but don't you feel like the, I don't know, Oscar season is so, like, tight-assed. And something about, I don't know, just the Tony Awards just have a real nice vibe yeah. to them. Well, the, the New York theater community has a nice vibe. As I say, we're working stiffs. All of us are in the theater district every night, yeah. uh, doing our shows. Uh, it's it's kind of a, uh, exhausting, but it's all a big party. Yeah, and work is play. But you've been. This is, uh, from what I know about you, your entire life has revolved around theater, pretty much. Yeah, that's been the spine of things. I grew up in a theater family, and that uh, I became an actor. Uh, against my own wishes, you know. Yeah. I didn't really want to go into the family business, but uh, it was my destiny yeah. as of age 20. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in my bones. I think what I do on TV and in the movies is bring all my theater equipment with me. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a rather theatrical actor no matter what I'm doing. Do you feel like... Uh I mean, I know when I work on different kinds of things, they're slightly different muscles. So where, mm -hmm. where, does your, where is your brain when you're doing television or film or theater? You must kind of adjust for the slice, I guess. I think you ad adjust the pitch of things, but it's the same process. You're still playing roles yeah, uh, and remembering lines. 
depending on who the director is. John <laughs> Apatow, not necessary to know your lines. Just have fun? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it's, Basically, you talk louder and you play to the back of the theater when you're on stage and you play for the camera on film and you have to know the difference. Uh, I, I had this big breakthrough moment in my life um, when I... Sorry, I thought You're I, probably getting a ton of emails at this point. Turn, I thought I had turned this off. I can't be trusted to know when my Blackberry is off. Um, the, when I did the Twilight Zone movie for mm-hmm. George Miller, yes. George Miller who directed Road Warrior and Mad Max and all those real high-octane movies, it was about the fifth or sixth movie I'd done, but it was the first one where the director was constantly telling me to do more instead of do less, you know? <laughs> and if you remember the high energy of that... So you had to fill Shatner's shoes from, right. the, from the, the old Twilight Zone Nightmare show. Nightmare at 35,000 yeah. feet. And everything I did, he would say, more, more. <laughs> he would say <laughs> things like, I want, it, I want it to look like your face is going to crack. You know, yeah. it was like, boy, have I ever found my director for movies. That was the first time I'd been asked to, to basically play to the back of the house. Oh, it was wow. very, very liberating. And, and before you know it, I was doing... Buckaroo Banzai, oh, you know, gosh, and, Buckaroo Banzai and, across the eighth dimension. Yeah, now that was a th- that was not only a theater performance; that was a like Dario Fo performance, just to completely blow out all the gaskets. <laughs> what did you do when you saw the script for Buckaroo Banzai? You were like, "What? They're what?" And then <laughs> yes, they came, and everyone's right. John. What? Yeah, I said no. I turned it down, <laughs> but then I met Rick Richter and Earl Mac Rouch, and just said, and then I said yes. Yeah. They're such unbelievably cool guys. Uh, Rick said, you know, just do this. I guarantee you'll have fun. And it was the, I never stopped laughing from that day to the day we wrapped. It was just hilarious fun. Is that a good, is that a good rule of thumb for you when you sort of get into a position where you can kind of pick and choose more, where you just go, well, this, this seems like the most fun thing, rather than this is going to be a blockbuster Hollywood blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, there's always about... Ten reasons to turn down or take a movie or a play, uh, but the most important is exactly that: just what does your gut tell you, and what is going to be the most fun, exciting and fun, and who the people are you're going to be working with. Yeah, I think that's the most important. Life is too short to work for assholes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes you just have to. <laughs> have you ever been for, on something and you're like, this guy turned out to not be awesome? Yes. And I'm not going to do it. You don't have to say what it is. Well, what, do, what do you do with that situation? Do you just sort of go inward and go, well, I just way to get through this? Well, you find all sorts of ways to make it fun for yourself and to try to do good work. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to sound like a snob, uh, but everybody knows the feeling of working for an asshole. Sure. You can't avoid it. But it's hard when the director is the person that you're supposed to trust the most. Yeah. Right. And if you if your relationship to that person is uncomfortable, how do you get around that and still give the performance that you need to? I don't know. You just find ways. You just a lot of times you have to do your own work. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, There's a difference between movie acting and the, the whole the whole process of movies and plays are very different. And television is its own variation. Uh 
the great skill of a theater director tends to be uh, working with actors, directing scenes, finding the moments when a scene turns, you know, really analyzing, giving you notes on lines, timing. Uh, a movie director has a lot more things to think about than that. You often have to do that work for yourself. Um, some directors are, uh, you know, there's so many different areas in which a director has to function, and you can almost have a bar graph of the various, very good at camera, sure. very good at casting, very good at script, very good at storytelling, or not. Yeah. Uh, I remember discussing this with George Roy Hill, a great old-timer, fantastic director of The Sting, Butch Cassidy, mm -hmm. Uh, and the world according to Garb. Of course. I was telling him my theory about the different areas in which a director has to function. He said, no. A director has to only think about three things. The script, the casting, the execution. That's it. Wow. You know, and he's right. <laughs> well, that, that, that movie was, you know, I, I saw that movie when I was young and I, I went into it going oh Robin Williams oh wow this is going to be <laughs> an hilarious what did you think how old were you and what did you think uh, what was Garp like 83 83 yeah. yeah okay so I was 12 <laughs> oh, and uh, what did you think make of Roberto Muldoon <laughs> <laughs> I remember being horrified by the guy getting his dick bitten off in the back of the car yeah everyone was um, but <laughs> but other than that I remember it was it was the first time because I come from a comedy background like I was just a huge comedy fanatic and it was the first time I started to realize oh comedians are not just comedians. Mm -hmm. They can do yeah. serious roles, and they can, you know, they can take on on heavier stuff. But yeah. I remember being confused in the first part of it, like, why when, is he? When is he going to be funny? When, when's, where's Mork? You know, like I was just a stupid, yeah. you know, kid. Well, and the most frequent direction that the Marine George Roy Hill gave to Robin Williams was, now nah, don't give me any of that comedy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about execution. <laughs> but Robert, the Roberta character was sort of the... I mean, if there was to be some sort of uh, a relief in, in the story, yeah. I mean, besides sort of being a support structure for his, his character, mm -hmm. was definitely uh, a relief. And, and, and the way that you played, you know, just, you know, you're a big, tall guy. Yeah, you know, and you uh, the linebacker, but but the wig and mm -hmm. the super super straight, but yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was fascinating. I I mean I I I played that part as kind of as inconspicuously as I could, very much as myself. You know, just being a very kind of soft version of myself, and let just the fact of my size and physicality and wig and and costuming and uh, prosthetic breasts <laughs> take care of the comedy. You know, it was just... And the, the fascinating thing was my first couple of scenes had big laughs. My third scene, I burst into tears because I couldn't have children. Mm -hmm. It's very tender and sad, melancholy moment. It was an, a wonderful part uh, of many colors. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I... Marion Doherty, the great casting director, took me, presented me to George Roy Hill as her first choice to play Roberta Muldoon at the beginning of her, his casting period, and he absolutely ruled it out. He said, no, turn me down, 
because he thought I was too tall. Put me next to Robin Williams and it would just be too ridiculous. But he spent eight months trying to cast the part. He finally came back to me and I did a screen test with three other actors and bam, there was Roberta. It took him that long to finally uh, realize that it, what I just said, just the bizarre visual t takes care of a whole world of uh, challenges yeah. in, in filming that role. It's nice, you usually kind of want to come in at the end of the casting process yeah. <laughs> rather well, than the beginning. Her, I was her very first choice. This was a great lady, one of the greats in, in our business who just passed away, Marion Doherty. Yeah. She almost invented the whole concept of casting director. Really? Yeah. Or I think she is the person who got casting directors uh, opening credits on a film, you know, or ma major credits. There's a real, I, I, you know, I think just living in Los Angeles and being in the business for a long time, you sort of take the job of casting director for granted. You're like, oh, you see casting directors all day. And a mm -hmm. lot of them just sort of fell into it. Yeah. But it really, like when you find one that really has, you know, vision, mm -hmm. it really does make a huge, yeah. really does make a huge difference. And you think of the great shows, TV shows, for example, uh, the casting is, is absolutely everything. And the casting people are very much involved with the process early on. Yeah. Casting Third Rock in the Sun was so much fun and took like two months. You know, like daily sessions with people, getting just the right people. And look what we ended up with. Yeah. When you were auditioning, did you... Do you go in with a pretty solid idea, or do you go in with sort of an idea, but open to be flexible if they start telling you to play around with it? Well, those were the old days. I haven't auditioned in a long time. Of course. But that was always my... Early on, I think, an actor tries to be extremely prepared and tends to be very anxious and scared to death of auditions. And then when you become more and more of a veteran, you realize the more you can relax, the more you can present yourself as somebody who doesn't particularly need the job, yeah. the more they desperately want you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yes, indeed, present yourself as, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Give me some ideas and, I'll, and let me show you what I can do with them. The most recent session I had to, that even resembles a casting session was with Judd Apatow. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was in preparation for this film, This, this is, is 40, 40 yeah. which we shot uh, last August and will be out next winter. And I, my agent arranged for me to meet with Judd because we'd met each other, but we didn't really know each other. And he was very forthright. We had a wonderful session. He said, the reason we're meeting is I can't really write characters until I know who's playing the part. And this part is just so unformed in my mind. Uh, and we just had a long, long conversation with Leslie Mann mm -hmm. there, Judd's wife and the one who would be playing my daughter if I was cast in the part. We just talked talked a lot about his own history. He told me the whole story of the movie. He, uh, Leslie talked about her history. I found myself telling about my various family issues. And he kept referring to the fact that to the extent that he'd worked on the part at all, it had derived from uh, improvs with other actors. 
even threw out the names of some of the actors he'd worked with on the part. And at a certain point I said, well, geez, why don't, why don't we do some improvising? And he was so relieved because he had felt <laughs> that that was against the rules, like my agent had instructed him, no auditioning. This right. is just a meeting. <laughs> right. And we improvised for about 20 minutes. And when I saw the next draft of the script, like half my role came right out of those improvs. Do you like improv? It was, this was a fantastic experience and a very new experience working with Judd. I've always improved as a little tool to getting to, to finding the essence of a scene. Usually with the writers around, like Third Rock, there was a tremendous amount of improv in the rehearsal process. Sure. But always with the writers there, and by the time we performed it, it was always a very tight script. Mm -hmm. But it was just a great... It's like when you're talking about, well, wait, what's the problem with this scene? Well, what's going on here is this and that. Before you know it, you're basically improvising the scene, finding the truth of it, and then they go off and write it. Mm -hmm. Judd works the other way. There was a script for This Is 40, but as you, as you film any given scene... You know, he sets up three cameras that, with this new technology, they'll run for 20 minutes. And you play the scripted scene. He's about 10 feet away behind a black cloth yelling different lines to try or telling you to do that line again this way. The cameras keep rolling. Nobody says cut. And you're fully expected at a certain point to simply start improvising the scene. And you do it again. He'll hear something he likes. He has a writer next to him who'll scribble ideas and pass them to him, and he'll yell that. Uh, and, you know, you film 20 minutes of material on a scene that will only end up 50 seconds long. Mm -hmm. And then from all that, it's like winnowing wheat. He gets just fabulous stuff that is so just completely spontaneous and real. It's a wonderful process. I imagine it's kind of the Larry David process, too. Sure. I've never worked on, on Curb Your Enthusiasm, but it's, I guess it is a kind of new mode, and Apatow has a lot to do with creating that mode. Yeah, I think a lot of people do that now where they, <clears throat> they sort of realize, like, oh, you know, if you just sort of keep the ball in the air, but you let people be funny and natural, yeah. you don't. It's a lot better than like, all right, you have to say my words exactly the yeah. way I wrote them because those don't—that doesn't always work. And he had so many examples of like incredible moments that you you would remember from Knocked Up or whatever, that were just that just burst out of improvisation, took everybody by surprise, and uh, they have this—you know—it's a kind of Apatow style that you can recognize. You know, it's movies are interesting that way, and that is another big distinction from plays plays, you're polishing a gemstone every night and you're refining it and getting it better and better so that you absolutely can count on uh, a performance and, and you can count on your other actors to know exactly how a moment is should to be played. Movies, you're capturing accidents at the best of times and yep. it's a different discipline. Of course, Judd's gang, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann and Jason Siegel, they're all, Chris O'Dowd, they're all in This Is 40. Albert Brooks, absolute master of this. They are so good at this particular technique. It was like joining at the top of the food chain for me. I just loved it. When you're when you're doing a play, so the columnist, you're this play, you've been nominated, you know, you've been doing the the play's been open for almost a month now. 
Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel when you're doing a play that it's done, or are you do you constantly have to keep? Do you constantly make adjustments throughout the entire run of a production? Well, you you make adjustments, but I think a person seeing if the person saw the show the first week and then saw it again ten months later, he would see a very, he wouldn't even see the differences. The actors might see that certain moments had grown yeah. or uh, uh, changed. The, the script is no longer rewritten after an opening night on a new play. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of your job to, to make it appear completely new to the audience. On this subject, I always tell this wonderful story about, from classical music, about like Sir Thomas Beecham guest conducting the Pittsburgh Symphony in Brahms second and rehearsing during the day when the concert is that night and getting no interest or enthusiasm or energy from the orchestra and stopping and saying, ladies and gentlemen, I know you are bored to death by Brahms second, that you played it a thousand times and you have no particular interest in playing it again tonight. But there are two people in the audience tonight that I want you to play this for the person who's hearing Brahms second for the first time and the person who's hearing it for the last time. Oh, wow. And that's kind of my philosophy of theater acting. It's not, it's not supposed to be exciting for us. It's supposed to be exciting for them. It's not going to be new for us, but it is new for them. And at the very heart of it is, you're giving them something. You're giving them a gift, the gift of an emotional experience, and that's our job. And it's our job to do it really, really well so that they feel it's brand new. There's a fantastic show that's just opened, which you should see while you're here if you can, Okay. called One Man, Two Governors. Have you All heard right. of it? Uh, no. It's from the National Theatre. It's been a huge hit in London for a year. It's an update to the early 60s of a Carlo Goldoni Commedia dell'arte comedy, okay. Servant of Two Masters. And a brilliant actor also nominated my competition for Tony this morning, James Corden. Right. It's, just, it's like good old-time British music hall farce, like vaudeville, British vaudeville. Uh, you know, cross-purposes, mistaken identities, servant of two masters, you know, it's his job to, to serve two masters without them knowing that there's only one of him. It's ridiculous, completely ridiculous. But they've built into the show all these moments where anything can happen. Bits with, of audience interaction where it's side-splittingly funny because people come up from the audience, you know, he basically ambushes them and yanks them up on the audience uh, on stage, which is very, very funny. The extraordinary th thing is there are also moments that they've calculated to look like something is happening. You know, it, it's very carefully planned to look like it's to totally unplanned. Sure. And it is brilliant, the way they've done it. In fact, I'm probably giving away a very important secret by even saying this in public. <laughs> spoiler alert. Minor spoiler but alert. But it doesn't spoil anything. It's such a wonderful show. I'm always, I was always 
I was always afraid of kind of theater. I, I, I'm a stand-up. And mm-hmm. Oh, it, I'm, I'm afraid of stand-up. Really? Are you kidding me? Oh, but it's, <laughs> but, but you, can, you can make left and right turns if you need to, but with, with theater, you know, with a play, you're locked into it, and you have to figure out where the moments are without adding words, and you have to keep finding gems mm-hmm. with what you've already been working with, and that uh, scares the shit out of me. I can't. It's very interesting because I, I find comedy to be performing without a net and uh, and hair-raisingly scary. Um, I, I mean, I have such an admiration for the great stand-ups for that reason. Just the extraordinary quicksilver minds. Yeah. Who did you like, uh, stand-up-wise? Well, I saw Steve Martin about three months before his first appearance on SNL. Oh, wow. Like, right before everything blew right up. Right before, when he was absolutely brilliant and nobody knew who he was. Was, was At the Troubadour. In, at the I Troubadour. Mean, not, not the Troubadour, the, uh, the boarding the house. The boarding house in, in San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. Did you read his great book? Of course. I mean, listen to the audio book because oh, he reads it. Fantastic. Fantastic yeah. piece of writing about the comedy process. And I still... In my entire life, and I'm 66 years old, <clears throat> I've never laughed so hard at anything live. Was the whole audience into it? Because he oh. sort of he sort of tells oh. it like, well, in the early days, a handful of people would be into it, and the rest of the people would be puzzled. This by this time, he had a cult following in San Francisco. As I said, three months later, he was on SNL. He wow. was discovered. Who has the wild and crazy eye with the banjo and the arrow in his head mm-hmm. and the groucho nose? <laughs> I I literally pissed myself laughing. <laughs> it was unbelievably funny. He's become a very good friend, and I've told him that. How did he take it? He's shy, right? He's very shy. It's like all business with him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know now. I think he, you know, because he was the reason that I ever even wanted to get into stand-up. Uh-huh. My parents gave me Steve Martin albums when I was growing up, and. And, you know, when I started this podcast a couple of years ago, like, he was one of the guys that I was like, oh, I got to get Steve Martin on. And as I as time went on, I realized, like, I don't know if I'd be able to... Have you had him on? No. Because he... I mean, first of all, I'd be happy to talk about bluegrass if that's all he wants to talk about. Yeah. But I know that he just... I don't know. I feel like he said everything in the book. Yeah. And there wouldn't... if I, I, I mean, he's done us a huge favor by writing that book. Because... Yeah. He really did remake comedy, but he's not ever going to be the one to talk about it in those terms. Right. And he does in the book. You know, he talks about this discovery of a new kind of irony. And it really is, it is amazing. I mean, the fact that he was there at the beginning of SNL is no coincidence. Right. Uh, Remarkable man. Well, I really hope that he does. I mean, he must have a sense that he completely changed and influenced a generation of comedians mm-hmm. and comedy itself. I don't know. It's, he, would, he would probably deflect uh, a compliment <laughs> like that. Why don't I pretend to be Steve Martin? We'll improvise oh, this sure. interview. <laughs> no, sure. no. Steve, um, what, uh, when you invented the new comedy... <laughs> All I need to do is fall silent. <laughs> Steve, I'm going to get an inch from your face and start asking you about stand-up. Does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> oh, my God, you're so brilliant. Oh, my God, he's Steve, still, so brilliant. He's still brilliant. I mean, his talk show uh, appearances nowadays, which he calculates very carefully. He works very hard on Sure. It. He's a great craftsman. Yeah. Which is the other thing that that book reveals how much carpentry goes into all this. 
Do you I see mean, stand-ups fascinate me. The way they, they, it's like some people go to gyms, they go to improv, they go to comedy clubs mm-hmm. to try out new material. Yeah. Uh, just amazing. And you see the great ones like Eddie Izzard or uh, Billy Connolly. Oh, yeah. You see Billy in a small space and you feel like you were there watching Michelangelo work on this that ceiling, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> just great. Comedy is a really hard thing to capture on tape, on yeah. film, or a, you know, and you still get the energy of Billy Connolly just listening to him. Mm-hmm. I've never gotten to see him live, but <sighs> I imagine it's just like a friggin' tidal wave. You know, he did this a couple of years ago. He did uh, a couple of weeks in Chelsea in a small room. And he did a couple of weeks at the Brentwood Theater on the uh, on the VA uh, campus mm-hmm. in Westwood. Yeah, the Brentwood Theater, which you can't even find with a map. <laughs> well, the, I know yeah. that compound. Every building it, looks it, the same. You cannot find it. <laughs> it takes you about a half an hour to find it, and you find it. And Billy Connolly is there, and so is Nicole Kidman and Eddie Izzard. You know, they've all made this pilgrimage an audience of about 200 people and it was one of the great nights of comedy I've ever seen oh man well Billy's wife was my therapist for a while wow and so it made me afraid to ask (laughs) if I could ever go see him because I didn't want to you know what I mean because he's like it's it's time to fire your therapist (laughs) well we're not he's not anymore but but just at the time it was just so you've never seen him live no I've never seen him have you ever met him yes yes I worked with him once and he was awesome. Oh, he he did the first time I met him. He did a guest thing on Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah, and God, I we, I we just loved each other. We had a supper between like the last camera rehearsal and the performance every week on Third Rock, and I sat across from Billy the way you know I was eating supper, and he he had me laughing so hard that I had to tell him to stop. You know, like carrots were going up into my nose. I, say, <laughs> I had to perform. It was like, stop, don't say it. I said, no, I'll simply, no, 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 don't say it. Not another one. No, but I, no, just, just, please, just quiet, quiet. You have to just stop talking. He's just crazy funny. And he's also part of the Steve Martin, like, banjo cadre. Yeah. Where these- What's that about? Comedians and banjos. <laughs> Kevin Nealon plays. Kevin Nealon, yeah, yeah, he's part of he's part of that That's too. That's right. I once, I I I I learned bluegrass banjo in the '80s, and never got on a scale of one to ten. I got to about one and a half. It's a very hard <laughs> instrument, really. But I did a Discover commercial in back in those in the '90s. Where the whole deal was they give you a Discover card and you're supposed to use it for a month. Mm-hmm. And then they look at what you spent, uh, what you paid for with a Discover card. And they base the entire commercial on what it is you did, these various celebrities, me and Michael Chang and a couple of other people. Michael Chang bought tennis balls. So, sure. so they featured tennis balls. I, among very many other things, I paid for my banjo lessons. And they said, oh, banjo. So <laughs> by this time... Uh, no, actually, I had paid for my son's guitar lessons, but I mentioned the fact that I used to take banjo lessons, and they seized on that. So I got my banjo teacher, and I sort of brushed up a couple of licks, and I played the banjo, among many, many other things, on this little commercial. Yeah. 
Well, of course, they, I did okay, but it was pretty lame. They overdubbed like Bella Fleck or something. So ever since, they've, everybody thinks I'm this great banjo player. I have this recurring nightmare of some, appearing on the Leno show and having somebody put a banjo in banjo, my lap. You're, you're a banjo player, right? Here, take, this, uh, take this banjo. No, 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 please, please, get it away. You just start running. Yeah. That's, it's the Michael Chang took the easy choice, the safe choice. He bought tennis balls. Way to go out on a limb, Michael Chang. Other people are buying banjos. Um, I saw you. I, I, I've always, it's always been enjoyable to watch you on stuff just even as yourself because you, you, you do seem to have fun. Mm-hmm. And I think I, it might have been, it was either a Golden Globe or an Emmy. You won, you won an award for Third Rock. And. Your accepted speech was like, all I do is go, uh, what? <laughs> like, it was yes. like, <laughs> yes. it's just a complete, like, totally self-deprecating, like, I'm winning an award for this. And it just was like, oh, it's nice to see someone have fun with it and not. Well, boy, Third Rock was nonstop fun. But it is true. <laughs> As I recall it, early, <laughs> early in the, Earlier in the evening, they had put up a clip from Third Rock of me. <laughs> the whole joke was uh, Sally had been asked to appear nude in Playboy magazine. Mm-hmm. And I said, what? Your naked body photographed on a full, double fold-out spread pinned to the inside of, the, of every horny, young, pubescent teenager's locker in every high school across the country? Good for you! (laughs) And later that evening, I won the award. And I said, honestly, I don't know why I won this. Everybody in Hollywood thinks what I do on Third Rock is completely disgraceful. I mean, you saw it up there tonight. Good for you! <laughs> I said, I'm embarrassed myself. <laughs> but I will tell you, <laughs> I loved Third Rock and I was so proud of it. And my, my here's a guilty admission. I still watch reruns of it. It's on TV now on the Reels channel. Oh, that's nice. And I tape it. I, I watch it late. I watched an episode last night. <laughs> that's nice. Though, I it's, just, it's like it, having a slideshow of a fun well, period it was, of your life. Well, no, a, a dozen years ago, I've forgotten all these episodes. And they are fabulous. I mean, that was a great show. When it was good, it was really, really good. Yeah, that was one of those shows. Usually um, sitcoms take a season or two to find their footing. And, and I remember... That was a show that came pretty hard out of the gate. Yeah. Where people were like, oh, shit, you got to watch this. You got to yeah. watch this third round yeah. show. And you, you guys seem to have your the voice of the show pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, so much of that came from, I guess, the, the, the synergy between me and Bonnie and Terry and the rest of the cast. Jane Curtin, for sure. Yeah. And, and this incredible cast. That, that's the two months we were talking about putting them all together and finding French Stewart and Joey Gordon-Levitt. Now, yeah. Now big movie He's star. He's doing all right. He's doing all right. I'm waiting for him to hire me. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, I still can't say, I still can't hear Jane Curtin's name without wanting to go, Jane Curtin. Like, yes. Even though that hasn't happened for three decades. <laughs> I know. I, I worked with Danny Aykroyd recently. Oh, by wow. The way. 
on this incredible Jay Roach comedy that's coming this summer. Yeah. Uh, called The Campaign. That's the new name for it. Oh, is Zach, with, is Zach Galifianakis in yeah, there too? Yeah, Will Farrell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will and Zach play uh, equally Id- idiotic uh, cam- uh, candidates for a backwater congressional seat in North Carolina. And Danny and I play billionaire brothers who finance Zach, mm-hmm. you know, for our right-wing agenda. And boy, it was so much fun working with Danny. Uh, we had actually done the little epilogue to the Twilight Zone movie together. Years, oh, years right. You want to see something before. really scary. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I was lying on a gurney and he was driving the ambulance, we literally never looked at each other during the whole scene and I think maybe exchanged two or three sentences of conversation. That was the extent of our friendship. But boy, are we pals now. Oh, you that's know, nice. Wonderful, wonderful time on that movie. That's great. When does that come out? Uh, August 10th, I think, okay. in the middle of the presidential campaign. Oh, and good boy, do timing. we ever have its number? It's great. How do you, you know, I always think actors have this sort of weird curse where you're, you're, you're blessed or cursed, everyone will get with this kind of hyper awareness. You know, I think a lot of performing types suffer from anxiety. There's a lot of depression, I think. Um, but just hyper, hyper, hyper aware. But your job requires you to get out of your to get your brain out of the way, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't really be aware when you're acting. Is that is that fair to say? Well, I I think that's that's a great blessing, though. I mean, it, it takes you out of yourself. Uh, you know, I've been through some hard times in my life now and then, and work was always my great salvation. Um, it is a joy. I mean, we don't work we play yeah we play that's that's the verb for acting is to play play parts and uh it sure beats working for a living you know it's i i mean yes we we are neurotic people i think actors i mean all of us are neurotic people that's a given uh but actors have this curious way of uh sort of running from reality running from harsh reality or making reality tolerable not just for themselves but for other people as I say that's our job Mm -hmm. why else do people go to theaters huddle in the dark with a bunch of strangers and watch people up on stage lit up with artificial light there's something that drives them to go there we're all part of the same process we're all stepping out of reality for a while and uh, and we're all having a good time doing it when it's good yeah Actors are just part one half of that transaction. I'm sounding extremely pretentious. Not at all, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it, I, it's just something that interests me from the standpoint of. I feel like there's, especially with comedy, you can watch a lot of comedy and you go, "That guy, he knows he's playing a funny part," as mm-hmm. opposed to someone who just is. Yeah. And and I'm always trying to figure out as someone who has difficulty getting out of my own way sometimes, like, Mm -hmm. how to achieve that sense of, you know, at least perceived non-awareness. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question that I always ask of myself, and and I'm fascinated by the answers I get from other people, is why why do you do this? What was the first, your first impulse to do it? And uh, I think it's a, an unanswerable question. You, you, you can't, I can't quite get my brain around it. Uh, 
it is a, a certain kind of thrill that I seek out and can't do without. But what is it? It's a strange thing I do, uh, acting out stories for other people. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why they need it and why they, what they're getting out of it, especially when you're doing drama in which your, your highest achievement is making people cry. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear people sniffle and sob out of the audience, you think, yes! Well, what kind of weird torture is that? You know, breaking people's hearts. It could just be an emotional exercise, like like going to the gym. You need to, you need to feel the depths of your emotions to keep sane. Yeah. Maybe. Well, emotional exercise is exactly the phrase I use for it in my. I've written a memoir last year. Uh, you know, and there was a whole chapter where I kind of ruminated on these various issues, and that's what I came up with. We all need emotional exercise. It just heightens our sense of ourselves as feeling people. Right. Uh, and I don't know, I, we sort of ossify unless we get that sure. exercise. And we all absolutely require it, whether it's going to the hundred, paying $100 to go see a Broadway play or seeing a movie, or watching something on, watching CSI on television, right. or listening to a country music song. I mean, there are various, various sources for this, but absolutely everybody has to have it in every culture. You know, uh, in Mongolia, they're doing something to amuse themselves. You know? <laughs> it's probably the internet now. That's what everyone does. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but you're either growing or you're dead. You die. You yeah. know, like you have to. You have to go in, yeah. in some and, direction. And emotional exercise is about the best phrase I can come up with, and you used it yourself. Hey. <laughs> um, did you? You know, when you hit forty, fifty, sixty, was that helpful for you? You know, did you did you enjoy this sort of like ah, I've gained ten more years wisdom, and I see you know was there any part that was like, boy, you know, getting older is weird, or were you like, no, I'm embracing it, I love it, and it's it's just helped me be a better person. I don't know. I I, I if if you're wise, an actor embraces his age and and plays parts that are age appropriate and doesn't worry about growing old. In fact thinks of it as opening up a whole new uh, range of roles. Mm -hmm. This part I'm playing right now, Joseph Alsop in The Columnist, is he, he ages between mid-40s and late 50s. Uh, an incredible part, uh, full of all kinds of issues of old age, you know, very, very painful issues of growing older and losing your relevancy mm -hmm. as a journalist in his case. Uh, losing your sense of yourself and your sense of your power. Uh, these are issues that you confront when you're north of 60. So I've got... Uh, I, these roles are now piling in. I've survived. <laughs> and the, I don't have a lot of competition, you know? <laughs> Anyone with any brains has quit acting long ago. So no, <laughs> there's no. only about five of us left. Who fucking wants to sit around and do nothing? <laughs> Who wants to do that? Well, I mean, the business also chews you up and spits you out. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I feel 
as successful as an actor now as I've ever been, and that's a wonderful feeling. I mean, granted, you're interviewing me on the morning I've been nominated for Tony Award. It's a pretty good morning so far. <laughs> Could have gone much differently. <laughs> yes. I don't know why I still you, do this. You would have had very different sir. answers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, we are ridiculously vulnerable uh, to people's bad opinion uh, of our work. Absurd. I mean, I fortunately I'm married to a, a very hard-headed woman who basically tells me to snap out of it when I fall into the into the into a deep sulk. But sure. we're we're vulnerable to that. Yeah. Um, you know, bad reviews are just torture, especially in theater where you have to go out the next night and perform for people whom you simply assume have read every word with a magnifying glass right. and memorized them. I'm just coming you know, to make sure this right. guy sucks like it said when I read yes, that exactly. thing. exactly. <laughs> it's either, well, he's not that bad, or, yeah, I see what he means. You know, it's, like, it's just awful. You just hear, they were right, and then like, you just hear a footsteps <laughs> yeah, knocking the door right. slam. Go. Or seeing a whole bunch of empty seats, people oh. who just decided not to show up. Yeah. But that's definitely not happening. Yeah, the the the, the awesome story is pretty interesting, and I, I don't know all of it. Um, but just the for people who don't know, just the idea that he was this political columnist mm-hmm. who became very powerful, but then also was, you know, a closeted gay man in mm-hmm. a time period where that was really not okay. Yeah, and. Uh, and so, I mean, you, I don't know. I just that to look at that story that you must just start drooling as an actor, like dang, I need yeah, it. Yeah, I, I read the script and just in me, it wasn't even offered to me. I sort of got hold of it, knowing that it was they were about to put this production together. And I told my agent, "You do your, you do your bit. I'll do mine." And I emailed the director, who was a friend of mine, and I said, "Hire me for this. You're not going to find anybody better." I, I was desperate to play it. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic role, beautifully written. David Auburn is the playwright, the man who wrote Proof. And uh, he is a man with such complicated issues in his life, an extravagantly buoyant, uh, sort of bon vivant, a sort of camp character uh, just drunk on politics, but also a social butterfly, loved... He loved Georgetown par- throwing Georgetown parties in which he put, would put Robert McNamara and Dean Rusk and you know, every major political figure together and just watch them argue uh, or lead the arguments. And yet he had this incredible secret in his life. Uh, very camp in, in an era where camp behavior was a kind of protective coloration. Sure. It's kind of a camouflage for the big, your big secret. Uh, and he also had, it's a, it's a six-character play, which means he has five fascinating relationships with various degrees of awareness of, the, of these secret issues in his life. His brother, Stuart, who co-wrote with mm-hmm. him, a very combative relationship with his brother. His wife, Susan Mary Alsop, who was a kind of uh, uh, a picture window wife. His stepdaughter, who in this, in this fictionalized version of his life is, he's very, very close to, 
played by Grace Gummer in our production, she's just wonderful young actress with a very famous mother. And uh, David Halberstam, the very young David, David Halberstam, who represents young journalism as opposed to uh, also sort of rock-ribbed, conservative, old-time journalism. All these things, so the issues of journalism and uh, sexuality and politics, the Vietnam War, youth and age, all these things are elements in the play and just woven together beautifully. Anyway, that's my advertisement for The Columnist. Well, I remember it was when I heard about the play and I just sort of heard the quick log line of, um, oh, you know, he was a really powerful journalist who could make or break people. I was like, oh, that kind of sounds like Sweet Smell of Success. And mm. I looked up like, oh, you played, <laughs> yeah. you played Hunsucker in Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah. No, wait, actually, this is my fourth big-time journalist. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's a reason for that. They are highly theatrical characters. And also, uh, you got a little of the uh, Harvard blood in you, so yeah, uh, right. there's a little bit of also, that going on. Also, it was very much the a northeastern kind of uh, Connecticut Yankee who went to Harvard. Yeah. That's another reason why I told Dan Sullivan to hire me. <laughs> and we both went to Harvard. <laughs> yes. John, you got the job. Wait, John, let me go. You're hurting me. <laughs> so well, sorry. in fact, he took some persuading. He thought I was too old for it. Really? Yeah. How do you uh, talk yourself out of that? How do you talk him out of that? I said, I can do young. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> I recently saw a very charming interview with Christopher Plummer, who insisted that he could still play 60. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> I bet he could. Yeah, he was a great actor. Um, let me also say that uh, your season of Dexter was fantastic. <clears throat> I mean, just fantastic. I had sort of, you know, the previous season, I loved the first season, I had fallen off one of the previous seasons, and I heard you were going to be on, I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I gotta, I gotta check this out. Uh, your character was so fucked up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a, it was such a cool, it was such a cool role, such a cool counterbalance to, to Dexter Morgan. Mm-hmm. How did you, did, did they, they must have approached you. Yeah, I, I mean, it was very interesting, quite late in the game. I got the offer. Uh, everything happened so fast on television. And it was presented to me in a pitch. Uh, Clyde Phillips, the executive producer, head writer on the show, and uh, John Goldwyn, the executive producer. Uh, I sat there in a room at CAA and they told my agents they had to leave. This is wonderful. Culture of secrecy around Dexter. And they told me the entire 12-episode arc, blow by blow, as if it were a campfire story. And they had me so on the edge of my seat. Uh, They were giving me information that nobody else had, including the rest of the cast. Michael C. Hall, by that time, was an executive producer, so Mm -hmm. he could have known this information, but he didn't want to. You know, oh, right. He didn't want to know things that the rest of the cast didn't know. So, so when I took the part and started working on it, I knew things that they didn't know. I mean, spoiler alert, I knew about the secret, uh, well, I don't think I'll even say. Okay, you knew a thing. I knew all sorts of things, and if you remember that 12-episode season, yeah. there were about four or five gigantic revelations. Huge. And I knew them all. Because they had, they had tried to sell me on the role by just building the suspense as the 12 episodes went on. And 
the last three or four scripts were not written yet. They were just blocked out. So when I started performing the first several uh, episodes, they took off from that. I mean, they made the character richer and richer or darker and darker. Um, but, you know, those people who know that season, they will remember the lines, Hi, Dad. Yes, yes, and, yes. And hello, Dexter Morgan. You know, all these, <laughs> these astonishing moments that were, you know, you wait forever to be in something where, where you make people gasp with surprise, you know. Yeah. You deliver, you deliver on, you, you, you pay off suspense that big time. It would have been in a great place to drop in when Dexter says, like, uh, I see your monster, whatever, you go, good for you. <laughs> you totally could have dropped that in. Yes, you totally right. could have. You totally could have dropped that in. <laughs> and then we like, "Oh, that character's really crazy." Well, you know that uh, it was great to go into to the, the last big thing I'd done on television. Of course, was Third Rock, this yeah. sort of zany, uh, clueless, and innocuous character. To be, I mean, to to, to sort of bring that sort of racial imprint into the role of the Trinity Killer was fabulous because they it was like a top you didn't know where it was going to spin you know uh, you, it, th- this character could go anywhere and they, they, they plotted it so beautifully that in the first five episodes you barely saw him yeah. it was a very small part for the first several you just got little glimpses those glimpses were completely hair raising but just little, you didn't know what in the world made this man tick. And as they were trying to figure him out, so was the audience. Uh, of course, I knew. <laughs> is it more fun to play a character who is, well, I mean, a character like that doesn't really, probably doesn't see himself as evil, but is it more fun to play like a really messed up evil character or just a happy guy? Is well, it, it all, you just want it. To, I mean, I had just as much fun doing Third Rock as I did doing Dexter, and nothing could have been more different. You know, you just look for fascinating dualities, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the case of uh, Dexter, the duality, I think, was this was a man, a pathological killer, who was tortured and tormented and hated doing what he was doing. He wanted somebody to stop him. It was a compulsion that he wishes he didn't have. And I just thought that was a fascinating duality. When he was beating somebody to death with his hammer, with a hammer, tears were streaming down his cheeks. And I thought, that's something that is so disturbing and compelling. And that's all you're interested in, is is having that kind of impact on people. Yeah. Is it... I also know you wrote a bunch of children's books Mm -hmm. and uh, recorded some songs... So it's just kind of it's just like having the different facets of the same person. Are like, uh, honey, look, your favorite author's <laughs> on. Right, right, right. Shield your eyes. <laughs> That's what I always say to parents: don't tell the kids about Dexter. <laughs> you know, his character John likes singing these songs. It's not. It's pretend. I know. It's just pretend. Well, fortunately, kids have no sense of different realities, you know, or or they have. They have no sense of overlapping reality. Sure. You know, I'm always getting parents with their little children coming up and saying, This is the man who plays Lord Farquaad in Shrek. 
and they just look at me, you know, the six foot four man with this blank expression. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you my favorite story yes. on exactly this <laughs> this line. Uh, you remember the opening credits of the world according to Garth? Uh, yeah. It was yeah. incredibly memorable. The the, the baby mm-hmm. flying up in the air yeah. in slow motion to this tune when I'm sixty four. Yeah. Well, about five or six years after Garp came out, uh, I was uh, doing a movie in, up in Scarsdale, of all places. I took my own kids to the Scarsdale public swimming pool. And a mom and dad with their like six-year, five-year-old boy came up to me and said, are you the man who, who was in World According to Garp? I said, yes. This is, you're not going to believe the coincidence. This is our son, Brandon. He was the little baby oh, in the wow. opening credit. And I said, this is amazing. Yeah, what a coincidence, Brandon Gray. And they turned to him and said, Brandon, this man was in your movie. <laughs> hey, tell him I'll take a meeting, man. All right. And there again, blank expression. <laughs> so humiliated because his little dick was on full view, if you, if you recall. Yeah, hopefully it had grown by then. Hopefully it got bigger. Uh, yeah, I worked on a, I worked on a, a, some children's. I worked on some animated shows, and they would always think it was a good idea to bring kid tour groups in. Mm-hmm. And then within five seconds, the kids are like, "What? Yeah, they're not paying attention." Right. It's like you're just a bunch very, of grown-ups. Very tricky business entertaining children. Oh right? yeah, and I do it. I still do it. I still give concerts with uh, orchestras and bands. Boy, and they 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 literally don't have the ability to hide when they're not interested. Yeah, I mean it's they don't have and, the and, decency. <laughs> right, and I've gotten so good at keeping them completely engaged for hour-long concerts. It's really fun. What's the key with them? Well, it's very, very basic. It's, uh, I, I, I think I take it from my own experience with my own children. When I entertain them, I have a big easel for one thing. I have these different devices. Uh, and I, a lot of my songs are about animals. Mm-hmm. And I play a game with them called Guess the Animal. I said, I'm gonna start drawing an animal, and you have to guess what it is before it's finished. And I draw a huge hippopotamus or whatever, and they start yelling, you know, it's a goat, it's a cow, you know, and then suddenly, it's a hippo, it's a hippo, and like a thousand children are screaming, it's a hippo! And I turn, I say, it's a what? It's a what? And I just drive them into a frenzy, and then finally say, "Right, it's a hippo. Good for you." And then I and then I sing the hippopotamus song, and they listen. Yeah, that's just one of. I mean, they they don't have the slightest clue that I'm doing a number on them, but they love it, and they feel so in control of the experience. Yeah. By the same token, when I sing my first song, I come out in a top hat or a derby hat or something. I sing the song before I've even introduced myself. I finish the song, I start chatting with them, and uh, I have the conductor sort of pull on my sleeve and point to my hat. And I say, what? I reach up and I feel the hat, and I say, oh no, I've done it again. I do this all the time. I put the hat on, I sing the song, I forget to take my hat off. It's my worst habit. If it happens again, be sure to tell me. (laughs) And then, of course, I wear, in the course of the concert, I wear about six different hats, 
progressively ridiculous hats, you know, beanies with propellers or a kangaroo ears or a pith helmet. And every time I forget to take the hat off, and once again, they scream as if it's the most important thing in the world. Take off your hat! <laughs> they have absolutely no sense of irony or deception. And in, it, in its curious way, it is, it is the little child version of what I try to do for adults. Suspend disbelief. Make them forget that I'm pretending. Make them completely forget. And children really do. Adults don't entirely forget. They know they're in a theater. But sure. kids simply forget. Oh, you know, you could make so much money. You've basically just described the internet. <laughs> no sense of irony. They want to be engaged. Yeah. You could make millions of dollars teaching companies how to brand wow. entertainment for the internet. Funny, I never thought of that. If you can control the children, you control the internet. <laughs> there is a multi-million dollar business for you, John. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're kind of at the end of our hour, and I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do, I want to ask one more thing, which is, I read that, is it true that you were the voice of Yoda in a series of Star Wars radio plays? It's absolutely true. Really? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Lucas produced a radio series after Empire Strike after Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back came out. I was working in a, in a play on Broadway... Uh, directed by John Madden, the, now the film director who did Shakespeare in Love. And, so not the football guy. Not the football guy. Okay. That was the other John Madden. Okay, he did not go direct theater then. Yes. Okay, just making sure. Just making sure. <laughs> and Madden was, he was directing radio too. I mean, he was not a film director yet. And he was directing the Star Wars uh Series and he said, we're having trouble. We've got Mark Hamill, you know, we've got Billy D. Williams, but we can't seem to find a Yoda because Frank Oz is not interested in doing it. And I said, oh, impatient is he? And bam, he hired me on the spot. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's somewhere on my long resume. Oh, you got to be Yoda. <laughs> yes, I was Yoda. <laughs> and Frank, meantime, has become a great friend over the years. Actually, we never brought up the fact that I did his voice. Remember how I... <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. Well, you're great at this, Chris. Oh, thanks. thanks. How, how, do you, how do you know how to ask questions with no... Uh, Legal pad in front of you. I don't know. I just talk. I'm a, I, I'm a talker. And You're a so great talker. I'm a talker, and I just I, I like talking to nice, interesting, talented people, and so it's easy for me to. I don't know. It's just a conversation. I, you know the the whole interview thing is. I never want people to feel like. Uh, get the light on. Yeah. Okay, now you're being interrogated. <laughs> in 1973, you did this. Explain. Uh, well, here's my answer. Well, you know, you emanate a certain little... I guess it's kind of like the chemicals that the aliens emanate in Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> if you remember that. You're wonderful. You, you are wonderful to talk to. I, I've always been amazed, like, if you go on a, a press junket for a movie... Sure. You have to talk to about 40 different television journalists from the con uh, across the country, and each of them has about four minutes 
and that's all they have <laughs> so that they can get their stuff and take it back to their local station. Same 10 questions. So it's exactly the same questions, but I just find it so astonishing that some people are so easy to talk to and you're, you feel so clever and scintillating and delightful and other people asking the same question <laughs> verbatim completely shut you down. I mean, I have to say, I think there's something with the hour format where you can actually get into a conversation. Uh-huh. And I think with the with, with sort of press junket soundbite culture, it's just like... It's a killer. We just need one line, and then, yeah. and then you're going to watch Entertainment Tonight, and after, you know, hours of conversation <laughs> yes. with them, you'll be like, uh, John Lithgow says uh, working on Third Rock is it's pretty great. And then they yeah, cut to something it. else. You're like, that was it? <laughs> right. that, that was what you used? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all it's all soundbite culture. Very true. Well, this was just delightful. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I would, I, how long is uh, the columnist running Til for? Mid July. Okay, great. So come see it. It's just I would a, love to. It's a wonderful play. That's I would wonderful. really love to. Yeah, I'll definitely. I'll be back in June, uh, and I'll 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 swing in and, and get great. some tickets. Cool. Do do. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Great to see you. Wonderful to talk. We'll do it again. Ab- oh, thank you. Um, we say something at the end of the podcast, which is we tell people to enjoy their burrito, which uh-huh. means enjoy your present. Like, don't live in the, in, the, in the future, in the past. Would you feel too much like a puppet if I asked you to do it as Yoda? Oh, no. <laughs> enjoy your burrito, you must. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was great, Chris. That's fantastic. <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. I have missed these Friday night dinners. Hey, welcome to Harvey Graw! At these family dinners... Delicious, everyone! Dysfunction is served. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we embarrass you? Jump, jump, jump! It's already better than I dared to dream. They're extra. Let the wild rumpus start! And they're embarrassing. We know how hard it is to move on from the first girl that you ever slept with. Not the first girl who I ever slept with. Yeah, 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 right. You're a regular lady killer. I thought you said it was going to be boring here tonight. No! I really hoped it would be. But they couldn't love each other more. It's mom and dad being totally normal. Wow. So, dinner next Friday, everyone? Wouldn't miss for the world. Dinner with the Parents, Season 1. Stream free, only on Freebie.